No, here we go. There we go, guys. <laughs> What's up, everybody? This is uh, Rafael Garcia back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Today is uh, March 1st, Thursday, March 1st, and we are back for another edition to talk to you about all the news that's going down from this week and also to preview UFC 222 that's coming up this Saturday. But first and foremost, as always, I want to introduce my friend, my partner in crime, Shawan Humes. How you doing there, sir? Shawan, can you hear me? I don't know what happened, but he was just having a conversation with me, and now he cannot talk. So what I will do is I will boot him from the show, and then I will invite him back. Let's see how that goes. All right, sorry about that, folks, but boom, I had to invite him back to the show. But as usual, you know, we are here to talk about mixed martial arts and talk about the world of combat sports. And as always, um, we got a little bit to talk about because this was a pretty interesting week. I mean, the main story that's capturing everyone's attention was the John Jones hearing that went down, uh, I think, on Tuesday. But Schwann's back. How you doing there, sir? Oh, I'm good, man. Sorry about that. No, no, no. You're all good. You're all good. But as usual, you know, we're going to get right into the conversation. And we're going to start with John Jones. I mean, that's probably the biggest news story from this week. Or not, I'm not, I don't want to say the only one that matters, but... Definitely a very important one. Did you watch any of the hearing from uh, Tuesday? I watched some of it. I was it, one of the things that I was completely shocked by how it went. But it, but the, given the lunacy of John Jones, John Jones' recent career, I it, it was par for the course. I was like, what, of course, what else did I expect with this nonsense? Yeah, there was quite a bit. There was quite a bit going on because, man, there was quite a bit going on. As I was watching the, uh, as I was watching the hearing myself, I had I'm not gonna say mixed emotions, but I had just mixed questions that kept coming up over and over again. Um, just you know, to start from the top with this, Jones was fined 40% of his purse from that fight, um, that event, which equals out to 205 thousand dollars and his license was revoked he was not suspended by csac his license was revoked until august of this year when he can reapply but upon reapplying he has to show ways that he's improved his life improved his personality and just um is doing better which is important because i mean it, it hits on a lot of things that came up during the conversation but first and foremost there um Schwann, after i want to ask this question after the hearing do you think jones fights in 2018 uh, i don't think so i mean based off, based off what happened I, I don't see how he does I, I i just don't see how he does yeah i'm, I'm agreeing with that it was actually you know milky kawa had a, had this statement last month about he expects Jones to fight in 2018. Um, we're going to talk about Melky in, in a minute too as well, but I don't see this happening at all because A, we still have to wait for USADA to come around. We're going to talk about that in a second too as well, but the USADA aspect of this is going to be something big to watch because they have to deliver their suspension as well or their, um, I guess I'm, I'm using the term punishment in air quotes. They're going to have to, they want to deliver their punishment for this whole situation as well, because it's not 
as simple as just the CSAC revoking his license and everything's good to go. And what USADA does is really going to kind of set the precedent for what the other commissions do as well. And if we've seen what they've done in recent months, then we can expect John Jones. I mean, we should expect John Jones to at least get a two-year suspension. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that. Francisco. Is it retroactive, though? Like, is it from the time he's been suspended recently? So it would only be in, end up being like another six months or something? So I, my understanding is usually they are retroactive. And so then it would be from all, it would be from the last fight up through um, like 2019 or something like that. Something, it would be through, it would be through 2019, something along, along those lines. But if we look at what they've done with other recent fighters, I mean, Michael Madoff got um, two years. Francisco Rivera got four years. I think Tim Means got two years as well. But and and uh, Yoel Romero got a harsh sentence at first before he could prove that his um, supplements were tainted. All of those guys had evidence, and you know, in, in the Rivera situation, he was caught supposedly doctoring uh, documents for his defense, but he was supposed to be caught doing so. But seeing how this is Jones' second offense, um, and, they, and, I'm, and I'm not going to say they take other aspects into account, but everyone knows his history. I don't believe there's any way that they don't come uh, come back with at least a two-year suspension for um, John Jones. What if they don't, though? Like, I mean, he seems very confident for some reason. And, and what if somehow it just really blows over or it's, it, it, isn't, it isn't something as severe? I mean, what... What kind of clown show does that make mixed martial arts look like? If they do not, uh, I, I, the shit's going to hit the fan in a sense because all the other fighters in the organization would then begin to look and say, okay, if I get ever get caught using something, this is the precedent. And if they don't, if they treat me differently than they've treated everyone else, there's got to be some type of claim that can, that, that can come out of that because um, this is – like we see them treating other fighters in other different ways. So do they make an exception for John Jones? He's the biggest name that's ever come under this um, situation. So do they make uh, an exception for him? I mean, they could possibly because remember, USADA works for the UFC. So they could make an, an exception for them. But if they do that, what's the message that they send going forward? Yeah, that's my point exactly. But once again, after after that, after the most recent occurrence of him speaking about the situation and the things he said, how could you be that confident if you didn't know something something was up? Like, how, I mean, how are you that, that confident? Questions. You're asking very good questions there, sir. How can you be that confident if you uh, don't know something is up? I mean, that is a very solid question there. I mean, and he definitely was confident. You had you had, you had documents forged. I mean, you don't, he didn't really answer any question with any sort of remorse or anything remotely, remotely uh, responsible or showing any sort of intelligence in his answers. I mean, he basically looked like he wasn't, he, he'd be managed by an idiot and he himself is only maybe a level or two higher than that intellectually. So, I mean, how could you be so arrogant or so cocky to, to answer the way he's answered and treat the way, treat the whole process the way it's been treated and be so confident on every major social media platform, even after this meeting, if you didn't know something was going on. I mean, because even even if he would he somehow is let's say his his supplement was tainted, it just it's just a really bad look. It just looks really bad because this isn't the first kind of 
crazy behavior from him. So it, I, I just don't know where his confidence is coming from. They seem way too calm for people who've essentially, for what it, for anybody else on a lower caliber of star, would essentially perform career suicide. And, I mean, there's so much to take away from there because, again, this really kind of comes down to the USADA standpoint. I don't think there's been a date announced as of yet. I, I haven't seen one, but, again, I haven't um, heard anything. But, I mean, there's so many different angles to talk about from this situation as a whole. I really am interested in Milky Kawa's um, position in, in this because if you heard during the hearing, Jones admitted to never taking the USADA training sessions that were mandatory. Instead, he uh, asked, uh, or, or instead, um, his management team took it for him and um, signed off. And by sign off, it was more like a check check the box that, you know, when you do like terms of service and you scroll down to the very bottom to check the box, it's more. Can I ask you a question about that? Go ahead. The, if, he didn't, if he didn't take it, does that somehow, does, does that somehow excuse him from any punishment like because he didn't actually do this you know because when you do something you're signing off saying i understand the terms blah 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 blah. if you never did it could you say like hey well i never did it so you can't really hold me to these stamps even if i know them i never signed off on paperwork saying that i know and i'll abide by these things well is that is that the escape escape hatch i think it's the opposite actually i think that makes you more culpable because if you lied to say you did it and then you're caught saying that you you actually didn't do it. I think that 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 makes you more culpable, and I wonder if there's punishment that his management team can take or or can face in regards of doing so. Yeah, but if they get punished, does that somehow allow him to escape? Because you know nobody asked him. There's a form saying, "Did you take it?" But did it, did anybody call him and say, "Did you take this?" Or did they just assume because it was signed off on that he did it? Because he could, he could just spin and say, well, my management did this. Like he did. My management. This is a management issue. It has nothing to do with me. I mean, you know, like by showing a line of incompetence, well, if this happened in my camp where my manager, who's a supposedly intelligent, responsible, experienced manager was doing stuff like this, what else could have happened? Maybe somebody in my camp did it. Maybe somebody else who I'm training with did it. You know what I'm saying? Like some way just to set the, set the precedent that things aren't, he's not in total control of his camp. So all sorts of things could be happening that he's unaware of. So yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's. I don't think that that is a way out of this um, because when I heard that when I heard that he was saying that his team didn't um, didn't take the training. I was wondering, I wonder, like, man, are they going to really hold that against him even more so? I wouldn't be surprised if USADA does. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what their response to that is. Because um, I guarantee you it's probably going to come up that he didn't take the uh, the mandatory training. and But he signed, like, there's there, and to me, you know, this is just my opinion saying, there's a difference between not doing it and saying I didn't know because I didn't take the information. But saying you did and having someone else take it for you, that's worse. Yeah, it, it's just, it's got a lot of layers to it. I just don't, like I said before, the thing that's so shocking to me is he is, and I don't know if he's in denial or if he has some kind of knowledge otherwise, but he seems so sure that he is going to be fighting again and fighting soon. And maybe that's just who he is as a person and a fighter, but I don't understand how anybody could be making such public statements on a routine basis about how soon they'll be fighting, how soon they'll be back in the cage, and how positive they are about the circumstances. Yeah, I don't, um, 
Like I like. It's not yeah. a fight where he controls it. He he, you know he he's not in control of the situation. So I'm just wondering how it, how are you this confident? I mean maybe there's a reason. Maybe he knows the real deal behind it. But if you if you know that you're so innocent and all this, how have you not come out and, and made more of a obvious statement instead of going the well somebody could have done this, somebody could have done that, somebody could have done this. Why not just say I didn't do it? I don't know how it happened. I didn't do it. It's all. But now it's the, the explanation period. So I'm wondering what does he know that makes him feel so confident? That's the only question I have because he just seems really confident and casual about all this stuff. And I don't. Most times when somebody's like that, they're either out of touch and delusional, or they know something that we don't know. Yeah, I don't, man, I don't know. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that maybe they know something we don't know. Maybe they do. I mean, actually, like, again, maybe they do. Like, and this is all speculation, speculation city here, because again, the USADA deal is in employment to the UFC, and there's also been talks about whether or not they're going to re-up that deal when it, when it comes up. So, we never know what what may happen in regards to that, but yeah, you're right. Maybe they do know something that is contrary to what everyone is thinking. Maybe they do, but the only time we will find out is once this side hearing comes up. Very true. I'm, I'm interested to see how this comes. I'm really interested to see how this ends. Yeah, I definitely am too. Um, I mean, I think like there's so many different dynamics to kind of look at with with this uh situation there and like what else so like let me um let me pull up actually pull up something really quickly so how does this impact john jones legacy i I don't know if you saw what misha tate said about him um during her show a couple days later i think that, that that same day or the next day that she's basically over him and that she um doesn't care if he comes back or whatever. She may come back to him eventually along the lines, but she's over talking about him. John Jones responded, not really kind of, you know, t- attacking her or anything like that, but he responded. But from your point of view, how does this situation impact his legacy? I don't really know. I mean, I guess it takes away from the fact he's, he's, he, he's done such great things, but a, a lot of people in mixed, a lot of people who are fans of mixed martial art don't really care. I mean, they care about the fairness to a degree, but there's a lot of people, there's a segment of people who say we should just let them do whatever they want to get the best fights and the best performances we can get. And there's a lot, there's another segment of people who really believe 90% of the athletes in the sport are doping. It's just certain guys are getting caught. So it's like, in a, in a different stage, maybe it would have done a lot of damage to his career. But with if you really believe that a lot of people are just taking part of this and they're just getting away with it because of money or because they're camps or whatever then it doesn't really take it doesn't really change anything i mean there's a lot of mma fighters who throughout history who people thought were juicing using something but the whole logic was in in pride everybody was juicing so it's really just an even playing field and people still say the same thing how many times you talk her nate or nick diaz say 85 to 90 percent of the people are using something so if that's really the case people really believe that what is john jones do using something what is how does how does that make him look any worse except for the fact that he can't seem to get out of his own way and a guy of his stature should not be getting caught in these circumstances. And what's most interesting to me about this is, you know, from a USADA standpoint, I was having a conversation during um, Saturday's event when Jessica Andrade and Teacher Torres were, were fighting two women who fight at 115 pounds who are who look bricked up. They look in phenomenal shape. Their lats are like on 
par with mine, if not bigger. Their traps are huge. Their arms are ripped, six packs up up the gills. Like I get it. And the woman I was talking to was like, "Well, they look like they're they're juicing." And my response was like, "Well, when you look at that situation, you gotta understand." Tisha Torres was the most tested fighter in all of 2018. Excuse me, 2017. She was the most tested fighter on the roster. So if you're telling me that you believe when USADA catches someone, you have to believe that USADA is right when they are when they're saying someone is clean. And she has done everything that she was required to do. She took all the random tests when they showed up and she passed every single one of them. So why are we still saying that, oh, she must be on something based off of the way that she looks? And the same, we were having the same conversation about Torres and uh, and Andrade. And I think that that's, that's the issue I'm really having with the way people respond to you're these guilty until You're guilty until proven innocent because at some point, Chris Cyborg was not testing and then all of a sudden she popped or something. At some point, Chael Sonnen was not testing. At some point, John Jones was not testing. So, I mean, that's like saying you get caught once. Why do people apply that to the rest of your career? People just go off speculation. They, the way you look, the way you the way you perform. Daniel Cormier was, was saying stuff about that when he fought Jones for them. He's like, he just didn't get tired. He had to be on something. So, I mean, until you get through the entirety of your career without getting caught, like a, a GSP, people are always going to have that, and they're always going to say it, and they're always going to think it. That's just the way it works. The reason GSP never, it kind of went away with him is because they're like, the entirety of his career, nothing ever went wrong. So, what are, what are you going to say about that kind of? What are you going to say about him? But as long as you're fighting, as long as you look a certain way or you're performing a certain way, I think at this stage, people see you as guilty until proven innocent. Definitely, I, mean, I, I, I definitely that's agree with that. Just how it's going to be. Um, so yeah, you know, we talked about the USADA deal and what's going on in that situation with John Jones. We'll see what, what what comes up. We have not heard when the USADA day is planned, when the USADA hearing is planned, but we will definitely, I'm sure everyone will be uh, taping it or live broadcasting it just like this one here because it'll be a pretty uh, interesting event. Let's, um, let's look back to this past Saturday's card, UFC on Fox 28, where we had, I mean, to me, I was actually talking about this, man. To me, in my opinion, these last two... UFC events have been not even really promoted too heavily. They didn't feature any of the biggest names, but there were very solid cards from top to bottom. I mean, and what I mean by solid is the action that occurred. This was a this was an enjoyable card. I had fun watching it from start to finish. Just about it, all the bouts that I saw, I think I missed. I think I came in on the Angela Hill fight and saw everything. No, I came in on the Alan Dubon fight. <laughs> Excuse me. I think that's where I came in on a card. But let me, let me let me look real quick. Where did I, yeah, I came in on the no, I came in on the Sam Alvey fight, and I saw everything from there. And this was an enjoyable card from start to finish. Um, what did you think of the whole event, uh, Schwan? Was it something like entertainment wise? What did you think? Entertainment wise, it was fine. I mean, it had it had good matchups. It had matches that had some importance. It just didn't have any real wow wow factor. But as far as the quality of the fights and the matchups. Um, I, I thought it was well 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 matched fights, and I, I thought all the fights were fairly exciting. The only fight I would say would be somewhat would have been somewhat boring would have been the Hill Moroz fight, just because of how Moroz was throwing so much and not really making contact. That that kind of took any of the excitement out of the fight. But for the most part, most of the fights were competitive, and a lot of them ended um, with finishes. So I mean, how are you going to argue that? Yeah, I mean, most of them really finished with uh, a whole bunch of excellent finishes too, as well. And let's start at the top. Let's start with um, Jeremy Stevens defeating Josh Emmett here, and he finished him via uh, TKO in round two, was it? 
Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, round two. So, of course, we got to talk about that knee. Did A... Okay, so we can talk all day about whether the knee landed or not. We, we've seen the replays on top of that, and we've seen what happened next with Stevens finishing the elbows, finishing with elbows there to um, close out the fight. What do you think about the way that that situation was handled? I'm going to give my opinion about it as well, but what do you think about the way that that whole situation was handled from the moment that the knee landed to the explanation since? I, I, I was under the impression that even when he threw the knee, that they would stop it and kind of reset it. I thought that's I thought that's what they had that that's what happened in situations like that. I think something similar happened with Bobby Green and um, Lando Venata, if I recall correctly, and they kind of reset them, gave them a second, set them up in a neutral position, and then then ha- had the fight go again. So I, I kind of felt like Dan Mergliata kind of missed a chance to kind of just even the playing field and put it set it right back and go. I mean, I don't think the need, I don't know if the need contacted, but the fact of the matter is, if, if I'm understanding the rules correctly, he threw in a legal knee, which means you have to stop the fight where it's at, check on the other fighter, and then reset the fight. That was my understanding of it. Maybe I don't understand the rules well enough, but that was my understanding of it. And that's kind of where, um, hold on a second, and that's kind of where my mind went, because I was I was watching the fight at, in the, um, the fight metric office, and we were talking about whether or not the knee changed the fight, and my first thought was, well, if the referee sees that a fighter is down and another fighter throws a knee at, at the opponent's head, and it lands in some, some sort of, of, of instance, whatever it is, devastating or not, my understanding was that the fight is stopped, you separate them. You, you warn or you take a point, you take away the position, and you restart the fight. That's how I thought that was. And that drastically changes the fight here because then you don't have Emmett getting pushed over and getting finished via elbows. So yeah, um, he, he's back in a neutral position where he can avoid avoid strikes or you know fire, fire back strikes on an equal basis. Exactly. So that right there kind of caught me off guard. I think that that's kind of the most egregious thing that I don't think anyone's really talking about. And the inability to use replay in, in Florida is also a problem there. And just the kind of the, the differences among, amongst rules across all these different organizations. Yes, it, it is. A bigger, a, it's a bigger it, problem with the sport because, I mean, in NFL, whether it's in Pittsburgh, it's in Dallas, it's in Washington, it's the same rules. But even in boxing, I think the rules are the same, except for the three knockdown rule. Occasionally, that that's something changed. But everything else is the same. In mixed martial arts, it's like almost state to state, region to region. It's different rules, and especially with the replay and everything else. So it makes it really hard to to find a uniform solution to it because the rules aren't always the same, and the circumstances aren't always the same depending on where you're you're, you're having the fight take place at. So yeah, and it really it's it's interesting because I believe Stevens was saying the way that he understood what the ref explained to him was actually incorrect. Period. Because anytime a fighter is down on one knee, he's considered a down fighter regardless of promotion or regardless of commission. So it there are there are a lot of issues that kind of came up looking at the way the situation was handled and what really occurred. You can't go back. Uh, Emmett, I think Emmett is going to appeal. The um the finish I doubt he'll get it overturned, nope. but it really kind of brings the issue to the forefront of what is going on with with uh, rules in MMA. Did Murgliata speak out yet? Because Stevens didn't he on the the post fight uh, interview didn't he say that Murgliata told me to do this? Yeah, and that's kind of how and he uh, explained it. 
Yeah, he's like, he told me if this happens, you can do this. And if that's the case, how come, the, I mean, I guess, I, I, don't, I don't know how often the referee speak out, but he's basically saying the ref told me to do this. So the blame would fall 100% on the ref. If that's, in fact, what he was told to do, then in his mind, he wasn't breaking the rule. And, it, and if that's what Mergelado really told him to do, then of course he's not going to jump in and start and reset it. But I didn't know the refs could come up with their own rules. I, I'm just curious how this hasn't become a bigger issue with Dana White, with the UFC, with any kind of commission, because to my understanding, that's against the rules in and of itself. If you attempt a foul, it's like if you're boxing and I try to kick you, even if I don't kick you, even if I miss, they would stop the fight and warn me and reset the fight. They wouldn't just, you know, oh, well, he, he missed the kick, so it doesn't count. And I know those are two different combat sports, but the fact of the matter is, if that's against the rules and he attempted a foul, the fight needs to be reset so the person is in a position to defend themselves or attack without being finished. Because at that point, he was in a bad situation. After getting rocked, he was obviously in a bad situation. There wasn't much he was going to be able to do anyway. And it would have been, a, it would have been, in a sense, it's a cheap escape, but the fact of the matter is, Jeremy Stevens threw a knee he didn't have to throw. I mean, Emmett was really rocked. He didn't have to, a, a knee. He could have thrown another two punches, and that would have been it. Yeah, definitely. I'm, it was I'm not quite sure why he used the knee in the first place, to be honest. So let me ask this then. Um, you know, we always get back to this point when we're talking about Jeremy Stevens. This is another big win. He's headlined two events in like two months, got, and, and he's gotten big finishes in both events. Do we ever see a situation where – and he's only 31 years old. Do we ever see a situation where he's fighting for a, a title and being considered a true contender at um, featherweight? I think he's just got to beat someone who's who's legitimately considered elite. I mean, no offense to Emmett, but his number four ranking in the featherweight division, what was that based off of? Not making weight, knocking out Ricardo Lamas? That wasn't legit at all. I mean, he wasn't really the number four featherweight in the world. That, that's all I'm going to say about that. So it's a great win because Emmett's a physical specimen. He's, he's a good wrestler. He comes from a good camp. He hits hard. But as far as actual rankings... It doesn't really mean a lot because no, nobody I know considered Emmett to be an elite fighter. He has to be an elite guy. But every time he's faced a, a certain caliber of guy, he has lost. Cub Swanson, um, Frankie Edgar, Max Holloway, and he never fought Jose Aldo. But all the elite guys, he's, the, all the guys who would be in front of him, he's already lost to. So he'd actually have to beat someone of that caliber, like a Brian Ortega or a Frankie Edgar still or... Um, Cub Swanson, where I could even really consider him a title contender in my mind. Not not because he doesn't have the physical tools to perform or maybe be be in that position, but he ha to me he hasn't done enough. He's been beating guys who aren't really highly ranked or aren't really re really dominant in the weight class. Gilbert Melendez, okay, I mean that that's great. Don't um, the Korean Superboy? He beat him, but that was just coming off of off of like what he was out of the cage for almost like six, seven, eight months. And he's coming off a knock a knockoff loss himself. So a bad I mean, one. Yeah, a bad knockout loss to another guy who's already beaten Jeremy Stevens. So I mean, when people keep saying, eventually can he work his way into it? But he's going to have to beat someone elite. And it's and the elite people in the division are the same people it's always been. Jose Aldo, Frankie Edgar, Max Holloway, and um, yeah, that and Cub Swanson. That's pretty much been the last couple of years the elite guys, and he is gotten a shot at three of them and he has not beaten any of them as of yet like if he could beat a jose aldo even though jose aldo's coming off of two losses against the champion maybe but he to me he'd have to beat an edgar jose aldo or he has to beat someone like brian ortega or maybe even beat cub swanson he, he that was my goal actually that was my goal and i wanted to see i thought next i mean 
or Ortega's already matched up, Edgar's already matched up. We know Holloway's gonna get the winner out of out of those two. I thought it would have been smart for Stevens to call out Aldo and fight him next. Because if he goes and he blows the doors off of Jose Aldo in a way that not even Max Holloway really did, then there's almost no um, argument that he should get a, a title. People will be clamoring for that. But to say that he should get a title shot right now, I don't think that that's going to come unless if it's like a late injury replacement or something along those lines. Yeah, I would say, I mean, to be honest, if he couldn't get Jose Aldo, I'd be like, get a rematch with Cub Swanson, to be quite honest. Um, they've beaten essentially the same caliber of fighter. In, the, in their win streak, they've beaten about the same caliber of fighter for the most part. Cub, Swanson, Cub Swanson's recent wins are a little bit better than, than Jeremy Stevens. So, I mean, go go back with Cub Swanson, who also thinks he deserves a title fight. But he would have to win at least one more fight to get that shot. So why don't you have whoever whoever wins out of Ortega and Edgar is going to get the next title shot. So then have Swanson and Stevens have a rematch, and whoever wins that fight gets a shot after that. Unless, I mean, I guess... Darren Elkins is out there too, but he's already beaten Darren Elkins, so he's not going to want to win that fight again. But as long as Cub Swanson's out there, he's, he has a definitive win over Jeremy Stevens, and he's beaten a better level of competition in the last in the last couple, last year and a half or so than Jeremy Stevens. So Cub Swanson has a, has as much right to a title shot as Jeremy Stevens in my, in my opinion, if not more so. I just have to see him beat someone elite. He's got to beat someone who's been to the top end of the division for me to justify him getting a title shot. Definitely, definitely there. Um, let's look at the rest of this card. And the co-main event, man, the co-main event was a fight I was looking forward to the most. Me, you, and Fiegel talked about it pretty much um, a lot during our last week's show. Jessica Andrade gets a decision victory over Tisha Torres. I thought it was much better than I thought than we thought it was going to be. Um, Tisha had the right idea the, the first round. Uh, she kind of ran into some issues right at the very end, but she was landing some good, good, good clean shots, in my opinion, straight down the pipe as Andrade was coming in with her with her winging hooks like she normally was doing. She was landing these shots, these, these straight shots, one, two, one, two, and circling out, circling out, circling out, which I thought was a great um, – strategy there. I don't know if she got tired, which kind of made it easier for Andrade to catch her in rounds two and three, but once Andrade got her hands on her, it was basically donezo from there. There there were some parts where Torres had some good scrambles, but she couldn't match the power of um, Andrade. I was, I was totally waiting for Andrade to hit it with like a F5 or something like that in the middle of the cage. It, it, it pretty much, it, a, lot of, a lot of people seem impressed by what Torres did, but it, it really didn't impress me because I'm like, Andrade is a big, tough, physical girl. She is not very skilled. That girl, I forgot the name of the fighter, but the same fighter who got uh, handled by Valentina Shevchenko, her, she is the same coach as, as Jessica Andrade. And when I found that out, it didn't shock me because Jessica Andrade's coaches haven't really refined her stand-up striking to any her stand-up at all. She doesn't know how to cut off a cage. She doesn't really punch in combinations. She's not a sharp puncher. Defensively, she's easy to hit. I mean, there's just a lot of holes in her game that get exploited by literally everybody. So I knew that Tisha Torres being the faster, smaller, quicker fighter and the better striker was going to be able to get off. Now, Tisha's boxing seemed a little bit cleaner to me, and that allows her to lay on the counters and pivot out and circle away and create the angles. But the, but the, thing, the biggest problem Tisha had is, one, she is short. So for her to do any work, even her jab, her longest weapon, her jab, she has to be right in Andrade's wheelhouse. 
and if you're riding the space where Andrade can get her hands on you or she can get her body up against you, she can pressure you, she can bully you, even though Andrade's shots are really wide, if you're short, with short legs and short arms, you can't really get away from them. And a lot of times, Tisha would land one, two, three, but then as she's exiting, Andrade will land that big hook to the head or to the body. And then the second part of that is when you're constantly in that range, it's easier for me to get my hands on you. If I've got a, I'm a taller guy. If I'm going up against somebody shorter than me, I've got a long jab. They've got to get past my jab to get their hands on me. With Torres, when she's using her jab, when she's using her straight right or cross, whatever, she's right in position. You can grab her anytime you want. So that's all Andrade did. Andrade just followed her, followed her, kept chasing her. Torres is wasting her energy, spinning around, throwing punches that aren't creating space. They're not slowing Andrade down. They're not backing Andrade up. So Andrade is essentially just getting her hands on her and tossing her. And the only other option that Torres would have had was to use a wider range of strikes. All she was throwing was hands. She didn't throw like side kicks, front kicks. And I know what people are saying. You would have got taken down, but she got taken down anyways. So why not throw some variety that's going to create different exits for you instead of just throwing the hands? Because after a certain point, you become predictable. Because even though Tisha Torres' boxing has gotten better, it's not that good. And as soon as Andrade got her hands on her, it was over. She just picked her up, slammed her, took her down, roughed her up, threw her against the cage, threw her down. I mean, it looked a lot. she looked a lot more successful than she actually was in the fight as far as actually doing damage and actually controlling the pace of the fight. She, like I said, she looked good, but it, to me there was no point where she was going to win the fight. I never felt like she was in control of the fight. I was like, okay, cool, the first round's over, but she can't keep this pace. She can't keep this pace. She can't hurt her. She can't take her down. She can't keep her from taking her down. How is she going to win this fight? And she can't submit her from her back. So how is she going to win this fight? She can be competitive. She can make it exciting, but she was doing. she didn't do anything close to winning the fight. And if this would have been a five-round fight, I guarantee you, in rounds four and five, it would have been just as ugly, if not worse, than what she did to Claudia Gadelia when um, Andrade fought her. It, thank God it was only three rounds, because Torres was done halfway through the second round. Torres didn't have enough to really push a pace or to stay away or to throw any real heat after halfway through the second round, in my opinion. Um, What do you think? So... Let's let's talk about this from a couple of uh, different ways. So first, let's talk about um, Andrade. She she gets a big win here, but does it make her any? Does it put her any closer to title shot territory? Because what I was listening to and talking to the people I was watching the fight with is that they would not be surprised if she gets the winner of Rose and Joanna. And I would much rather be more interested in seeing her fight Rose than, than fighting Ioana again. Do you think her getting a title shot is contingent upon who wins uh, their fight in April? Um, I guess, but when you think about it, who else? Who else is first of all? If jo- Joanna wins, I don't know that she's going to stay at strawweight. To be honest, I think if she if she wins, she's going to move up immediately after. That's my read on it. Second of all, who else is there in the strawweight division? To match up with Joanna, who looks even remotely dominant or effective enough to challenge her title. Felice Herrig would need at least... Felice Herrig isn't really in position. Michelle Waterston really is in position. Maybe if Herrig wins, she might have a chance at it. But even if, if Herrig lost to Carolina, then you have two people who Joanna's already beat and beat decisively who would be the leaders in the clubhouse for a title shot. Um, so, I mean, to be quite honest... Um, Jessica Andrade has had the most impressive wins, beating Claudia Gadelia, who has been the perennial number two, and beating Tisha Torres, another top five ranked uh, girl in the division. 
I mean, you can't really argue it. I, I'd say that she has to get a title shot regardless of who wins. Man, she beat the brakes off of Claudelia too. Yeah, so I mean, I'm not going to argue with you there at all. So do you think that if JJ goes to 125, then Joanna is definitely the next person to get the uh, title shot? Um, I, I think they. I think they're going to try and get Valentina a shot first. And then if Valentina has the title, they might let Joanna. No, no, no. I mean, I mean at 115. Oh, um, wait, say it again. If if Joanna goes up to 125, is Jessica Andrade the next person at strawweight to get a title shot? Yeah, I mean, I I think regardless, I I think she'd be the first one in. They'd probably do another title fight. I don't know between who and who, but she'd be one of the people in there. If Rose wins, she definitely gets the title shot. If Joanna wins in stage, she's in my opinion, she's still going to get a title shot. And if Joanna wins and leaves, she still gets a title shot. She's beating the best people in the division. She's beating the number, what, number four, number five girl, and she beat the number two girl. I mean, who who else ha- can make such a claim? Not Felice Herrig, not Carolina Kowalkiewicz, not Courtney Casey, nobody else. Nobody else has the recent win streak and dominant wins that she's had over the kind of opposition that she's had it over. So either way, she's getting a title shot. It's just depending on who she's going to be facing in this title shot. So um, what do you do with Torres here? You know, she lost a key fight here. Um, she's lost some issues. She's, she's lost fights to Rose, who she also has a win over. And then she lost here to uh, Jessica here. How close is she to breaking through? Um, personally, I... I, I really haven't seen her beat an elite person at the weight class. All the girls she's beaten, like Beck Rawling, um, Lynn Lieberger, another one, she, she hasn't beaten anybody with any real name value or somebody who's considered an elite talent at the division. So basically, she's she's right back in the back of the line. She could You could put her in against Angela Hill. Um, you could put her in against the winner of the uh, Courtney Casey. Well, if Michelle Watterson wins, you can't have her fight Michelle Watterson. And she just did. She's kind of in a real tough spot right now because she's good enough to beat everybody who's below elite, but she's she's clearly not good enough to beat the elite fighters in the division. I don't think she beats Claudia Gadelia. If Claudia Gadelia um, fights when she fights Carla Esparza, if Carla Esparza wins, I guess you could have her face Tisha Torres, or you could have Claudia face Tisha Torres. But I, I really don't think she's capable of beating the best people in the division. And I, I personally think she's too small for the weight class. I really think that she should fight at Adam weight. But the UFC doesn't have one, so she's going to continue to stay at this weight. But the problem is she's not big enough, strong enough, nor does she hit hard enough to beat the best girls in this in this weight division. And recently, her poor defensive wrestling skills, she's been getting taken down a lot recently. That's not a good sign either because that's one of, that's been one of her biggest strengths. She's been able to control where the fight goes, keep the fight on its feet, take people down when she wants to. And if she's not able to take people down like she wants to, nor is she able to defend takedowns the way she wants to, you're going to see more fights that are going to be more competitive than the Andrade fight, but very similar. She's going to land on the feet, start off hot. They're going to start countering her. They're going to get their hands on her. They're going to take her down. They're going to work her over. As I said before, Michelle Waterson took her down and controlled her. And Michelle Waterson isn't anybody's elite wrestler, nor is she anybody's elite physical, physically strong fighter. And the fact that she was able to do that to her for a whole entire round um, makes me very concerned for Torres' future moving forward, especially with some of the girls who are coming up and who are who are coming up from the fringes of the division as far as the 15, 13 ranked girls who are moving up. There's a lot it's of big skilled girls. Essentially, you bring up the takedown 
um, conversation here. The only people who have not taken her down in the UFC are Angela Magana, Angela Hill, and Jocelyn Jones Lieberger, two of which are no longer in the organization. And one who was cut and was brought back. Exactly. I mean, everyone else is taking. Uh, has Beck Romans been cut? Because she took her down. No, she she moved up to she moved up to uh, to flyweight. But then she just lose, or did she win? Yes, yeah, she, she she just lost. Okay, okay, so yeah, but um, everyone else, uh, Andrade, Watterson, Lima, Rawlings, Nami Yunus, all took her down. Yeah, I mean that when you're and she's a smaller fighter. I mean, essentially, a lot of the fights she's lost has been when she's been taken down, and some of these women who aren't really in her level of athleticism or level or ranking, she they're 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 able to do things they shouldn't be able to do against her, based based on the size and physicality advantage. And the worst part about it is now she's going to be facing better athletes, more experienced fighters who can do the similar things. Claudia Gadelia could do that. Carla Sparza could probably do that. Cynthia Calvillo could probably do it. Courtney Casey is physical and strong enough. Even Caroline, Carolina um, Kovacavich is a big, physical, aggressive fighter. So to me, there's going to be a lot more situations that she's going to be in like this one. So I don't, I don't really have a lot of hope for her to be an elite, a truly elite person at the strawweight division, in the strawweight division. She's, she's a name. She's gonna be able to beat everybody else in the division who's not elite. But every time she faces the best of the best in the division, I, I, I continue to see her losing and losing in decisive, decisive fashion. So someone who won in a very decisive fashion was uh, Ilir Latifi when he choked OSP to sleep, like clean, uh, in that light heavyweight bout there. Then he called out Daniel Cormier. Uh, so let's talk about this fight first. What did you see there? And do you think he is a viable contender at 205, especially knowing that Cormier has a, has a match with uh, Stipe coming up later on this year? Well, uh, OSP kind of gave the fight away. OSP's had this bad issue. He stands really tall in the pocket. He depends on his height and his length to protect him from strikes instead of actually learning how to keep your chin down, learning how to roll with shots, pick him off. He doesn't do that. He's never done that. That's how he got stopped against Manawa. That's how he's gotten rocked so many times in fights. And yet again... He was in the pocket with Latifi, excuse me, Latifi, and he got dropped multiple times as a result. Then after being dropped, he was stunned, and then he got put into the guillotine and he was choked unconscious. Um, it's a good win for Latifi. Latifi's a solid light heavyweight. He's been moving up. He's been improving. He's got good athleticism. He hits hard. He's got a nice rounded skill set. I don't know that he's a true challenge for Daniel Cormier because I don't know that he has the size or the wrestling to do anything when, I mean, basically Daniel Cormier could control wherever the fight takes place. It'd be a matter to me of how much does Daniel Cormier slip in his later stages of his career more than how good is Latifi and his ability to impose his will, defend takedowns, and land on the feet. If Cormier doesn't grow old overnight or if Cormier isn't ruined by fighting Stevie Miokic, which is possible, he could be ruined and, and get knocked out to a point where he doesn't have anything left, if he's still able to compete at a high level, I don't see how Latifi beats him. Beating OSP doesn't prepare you for Cormier. OSP's chin, to me, isn't there, and OSP doesn't really have a legitimate skill set that he can go to to dictate ranges and dictate where the place, the, the fight happens. And you can guarantee that if he gets in these positions, he's going to finish you at any time. OSP doesn't have that. OSP's the most vulnerable name fighter in the division. So while Latifi's clearly put a, put a stamp on that victory and he's ahead of the majority of the guys in the division I don't think that he beats Cormier I don't see how he beats Cormier right now unless Cormier gets old overnight in fact I would still say Latifi should probably fight maybe uh, 
Shogun or some he's gonna have to fight somebody else because Daniel's off the board for another three or four months. So he's gonna have to fight well, excuse me, four or five months, maybe six months. So he's gonna have to fight somebody else just to keep his position. Maybe he could try and fight Alexander Gustafsson to kinda put an exclamation point on it and make himself the clear title contender. But if he doesn't do that, then I think Gustafsson's gonna get the next shot before him. So, okay, well, I'm not not too mad about that there. I, th- I think that uh, Alir could go through Gustafsson to get that that shot there. I think he does need kind of one more win, especially, as you said, with Cormier being busy later on this year there. So, I mean, like, that's kind of really all I really wanted to take away from that fight. I thought it was a good showing by him. Um, Mike Perry getting defeated in his welterweight fight. He lost to, what was the guy's name? Max Griffin. Max Griffin, yes. What did you think about this fight there, man? I just thought Perry looked he looked like he's been fighting too much. He looks like he needs a break. He looks like he needs to get into a new camp. He just did he did he's a fit a lot of his success is based off his aggression and his physicality and his physical talent. He looked a step slow, he didn't look as aggressive and into the fight as he usually is. And he didn't look like he was he did his punch resistance and his his didn't seem to be there. Like when he got hit hit I don't know if it hurt him or just made him gun shy, but he wasn't willing to let his hands go like he usually he used to do. He didn't have that explosive first step like he usually does. His his punches didn't seem to carry the snap that they used they usually carry, which to me means he's been fighting way too often. He's been fighting way too tough a level of opposition, and he's got injuries and he's got damage accrued from keeping a very active fight schedule that he needs time to recover from so that he can get back to full capacity as far as his athleticism. That was his because ninth fight he, in eighteen months. Yeah, I mean that that's that's like Donald Cerrone kind of stuff almost. And he's been fighting some really tough guys. Even the fights he's won have been him catching catching as much as he's given. You know, Ponzanibio, Alan Jobane, um I forgot, did he fight Kim? He's fought a bunch of really tough physical guys and he's had to take as much as he's given. He hasn't had much time to rest, and that's in, that's including Training, training camp after training camp, tough opponent after tough opponent. At some point, it has diminishing returns. In fact, this is very similar to what happens to Donald Cerrone. Donald Cerrone will fight all these fights, and towards the end of these fights, you start seeing him slow down. You start seeing him not improve. You start seeing bad habits pop back up, and then he has a huge loss. He'll take some time off, and then you'll come back, and he'll look better than he did before. And Perry needs to take some time off. He needs to add somebody to his coaching staff who can who can find better and more efficient ways of fleshing out his skills and maximizing his physical ability. Because right now he's getting by all on talent, and in the division that he's in, there's too many super athletes for him to get by on just pure talent. He's got to develop a sense of craft, and it's not just figuring it out from experience and figuring it out on your own and instincts. He's actually got to figure out legitimate answers to the questions that fighters are posing towards him. He needs to diversify his skill set, or he needs to find creative ways to put himself in position to take advantage of the skills he has. He's gone as far as he can in and of himself. He needs to get an outside opinion, an outside coach, somebody who's not affiliated with him right now to direct him so he can get to the next stage. Because right now, his athlete, he's already he's, got, he's beaten all the guys his athleticism is going to allow him to beat. Now he's got to start developing, refining skills so that he can compete with guys who are just as athletic than him but have solid backgrounds in combat sports that allow them to have a plan A or a safety zone they can go to where he can't compete with them. He doesn't have that. 
and he needs to get that very quickly because he's going to burn out, essentially. That's that's my concern. It's been my concern every time we talk about him. The UFC is going to burn him out. His team is going to burn him out, and he's going to go from one of those guys who's knocking everybody out left and right to a guy who's getting getting knocked out left and right. It kind of reminds me of Eric Silva. You remember how that story went? The guy came in, torched yep. people, and then ran into John Fitch, and he's never been the same since. Yeah, I mean, this is a tipping point for him. I know... I know his girlfriend catches a lot of flack. I know his training habits catch a lot of flack. And you can win with bad training, just like you can win in sports with bad coaching if you have the talent or if you're facing a certain caliber of opponent. But at a certain point, everything becomes about skills, whether it's sports, whether it's public speaking, whether it's doing your job. At some point, you face a problem where you actually have to know what you're doing to resolve it. And I don't think he's, I, I don't think he can't, he can't progress fast enough. If you gave him enough time in a vacuum, he could progress fast enough, but, but the way he's progressed is by having fights and, and learning on the job. That's great because you learn under pressure, so you know what you can do. It's bad because you're taking huge amounts of punishment while you're learning. So for, for every lesson you learn, you're taking 50% punishment. That's not good. That doesn't work. That's a really bad trade-off. So he needs to find somebody who can get him with better sparring, can sit him down, figure out what his game is and find out some more interesting structured ways to get him to apply his trade as far as his striking game and his wrestling game because what he's doing right now is I'm, I think he's hit the wall I think he's hit the wall and for him to get through the wall he's going to have to do something different what do you think about Max Griffin's ceiling here I, I don't think Max Griffin is a bad fighter but I really think a lot of this win is because um, Perry just Perry's in decline, and he's injured, and he's not sharp. I think the Perry that fought Ponzinibbio, Santiago Ponzinibbio, if that Perry fought him, Perry would have walked through him. I'm not saying he had, a, he had a good game plan. He stuck to it. He was very disciplined. He was countering aggressively. He was going to the body, going to the head. He was keeping up a steady pace. But you've seen Mike Perry. You've seen Perry fight enough times. When has he ever been that passive? When has he ever been that hesitant? When has he ever been that slow? I mean, what he did in the third round was essentially what he usually does from round one to round three. But he didn't do that. He didn't have it. And I'm not saying that the guy didn't use good footwork and he did use feints and he didn't move. He did all that stuff. But I've seen guys who are better at that skill set, who are better physically and better skills, have tried that with Perry, and Perry's put work in against them. Ponzinibbio did something similar. Ponzinibbio is bigger, stronger, faster, and hits harder than Griffin. Why was Griffin able to get off like that and Ponzinibbio wasn't for the entirety of three rounds? Yeah, that's that, it, it. Was um, I just think that yeah, yeah. You you bring up the Ponzinibbio fight. That's kind of like the, the the starting point of it because he didn't look quite well there either. It, it was man, it, that was that was a bad loss for him because Mike Perry was the type of personality that was at a point where he could have gotten over big time and gotten into some pretty interesting big fights in the near future. I hope he takes an extended period of time off. And is able to recover from this and, and come back looking better, kind of the way Miles Jury did when when he went away, or or, or Rory McDonald. There's something to say about taking time off and coming back, um, looking healthy well, and looking fighter, better. Fighters need to do. I've said this before, and I'm not I'm not someone's coach, so, and I'm not part of the management team, so my paycheck isn't affected by this. So maybe that's why I say this. But I always say that fighters jump back too quickly into getting fights. If you really want to make an adjustment in how you're approaching things, you're like. I want to improve my conditioning. I want to work on my hands. You don't just work on your hands for three months. That's not going to cut it. Take an extended period. Take six to eight months off where you're not even thinking about fight. You're just working on skills every day. And after that six to eight months, then you decide you're going to fight again. And then you get another three months 
you'll know three months in advance when you're going to fight. So now you've had almost a whole year where you've been working on skills, working on your conditioning, healing up, learning, but not pushing your body to the brink at all points. You round it off in the training camp and then you're set with your new skills, your open mindset and a better sense of how you're going to attack problems. But guys keep on just figuring out, well, I'll work this out or it's just one thing or I just had an off night. That's not good enough. You have to actually address the problem. If your defense isn't good enough, you have to address the defense. You can't just get in better shape. If you don't know how to set up your punches, you don't just get in better shape so you can throw a thousand punches around. That's not fixing the problem. And at some point, if you don't deal with the problem, you're going to keep running into losses at the highest level. And there's a lot of fighters that applies to. They want to get right back in the cage. That's great. That's what you're supposed to do as a fighter. That's what you're supposed to want to do. But your coach and your management team is supposed to talk you out of that and start addressing problems so you don't keep running into the same thing over and over again. And this fight was like a lower level version of the fight was against Santiago Ponzinibbio. And to a certain degree, it's, it's like the fight against Alan Jobain. Alan Jobain wanted to control the range, pick him off, turn him, use angles, circle, counter him, and beat him, off or beat him up at range. That's all Max Griffin did. So basically, we've seen the same, same holes in him for over a year and a half, if not two years, and he hasn't addressed them. And now it's finally catching up to him because of all the punishment, all the activity, all the training camps are finally catching up to him. And now he's starting to lose to, to guys who aren't elite athletes and guys who aren't elite technical fighters because they didn't address a problem that was obvious to anybody a year and a half ago. So, and you actually brought up Alan Jobon. We're going to talk about him in a second as well. But I also wanted to talk about Marion Renault's win over Sarah McMahon. Now, everyone jumped on Twitter immediately after this fight asking questions about what happened here. And you and I kind of talked about it in the past. I don't think we talked about it with Sarah specifically, but we've talked about fighters not getting better over time. And Sarah McMahon, she was doing, she looked fantastic in that first round. Fantastic. And then she gets popped. She goes into panic wrestling mode and she gets herself submitted in a triangle choke um no defense to the triangle whatsoever and you wonder if she how badly hurt she was but what did you say there like who do you tip your hat to here more you tip it to marion uh renault uh highly here just because this was a big important win for her or do you kind of do you question sarah mcmahon more so at at this point i question sarah mcmahon i i did this article on a combat press and it was about sarah mcmahon and her her, her future moves in the division. And I kept saying that she's winning, but when she, when, after she lost to Rousey, she started winning again. But the thing about it was she was winning against a certain caliber of fighter, girls who were on losing streaks, girls who didn't have wrestling games, girls who weren't very experienced, girls who, who weren't top-end athletes. And I'm like, so you're beating these girls and you're putting wins together, but the question is, are you really improving? Are you showing a depth of skill and a refinement of skill that's going to allow you to compete with girls who have the athleticism, the size, and strength to shut certain aspects off of your game or to make you work in certain aspects of your game. And she hadn't shown any of that. She's been getting by on her physicality and her wrestling as far as she's very strong, she's got great balance, she can be heavy on you, she's explosive, she can get you down, and she's got better wrestling technique than I'd say 95% of the girls in mixed martial arts right now. That's what she's been getting by on. She hasn't learned, in my opinion, submission defense. She hasn't learned any sort of competent ability in striking because she strikes at the same speed. There's no variation in what she does. Not on the strikes she throws, not on the speed she throws them at. And she has no sense of urgency either defensively or on counters. She, when she's striking, it's almost like you're watching people spar in a spirited sparring match. It doesn't look like real fight time speed to me. She gets kind of lazy. She stands in front of people. She throws extended, she throws extended combinations that she does not have the positioning 
nor the sharpness of the punches, nor the head movement to use. That's how she got countered by Renault. She got hit with one clean shot, and she she wasn't knocked out. She wasn't supposed to be knocked out, in my opinion. She got hurt, and she panicked. She totally froze up in panic. When she fought Amanda Nunes, she threw a kick. Amanda moved out of the way, and instead of spinning around or stepping away from Amanda Nunes, she slowly turns around and walks right into a punch and gets dropped. She, she has a tendency of losing focus and she has a tendency of not showing defensive responsibility or awareness, whether it's on the feet or on the ground. All, all Marion Renault did was take advantage of a really bad strategic decision by Sarah McMahon and she routinely makes really bad strategic decisions. I thought Renault could finish her on the ground. Renault's that good off her back. Renault's that good off the ground, period. The problem is Renault has a hard time keeping the fight where she wants it when she wants it on the feet. She can't. She gets taken down repeatedly. When she fought Salida Noguera, she got taken down so many times by an out-of-shape, poor wrestler. She got taken down repeatedly. And when she wants to take the fight to the ground, she can't ever get the fight to the ground. She tried it against Bech Kohea. Bech Kohea was lighting her up on the feet, tying her up against the cage, throwing her on the ground whenever she wanted. She's never been able to force the fight where she wants it unless somebody makes a huge mistake. So she fights Sarah McMahon who had the ability to keep the fight on the feet or take her down in positions where she would be safe from submission. But as typical of Sarah McMahon, she gets clipped, she panic wrestles, and then she takes her down. And instead of showing any sort of awareness for submission, she just laid there. And in my opinion, she stayed on top because she's afraid of getting back to the feet because now that she's been hurt, she feels like she can't handle Renault on the feet. So she's just gonna try and hold her and just pin her for the entirety of the next two rounds so she can win the decision. She did the same thing against Lauren Murphy. She was getting beat up on the feet by Lauren Murphy, of all people, and then she took Lauren Murphy down and she just held her. She didn't do anything offensively, she just tried to hold her. She didn't even try to really defend anything. So she stayed in that position. Renal was working for the triangle. I don't understand how you're a world-class grappler or wrestler or whatever, and you don't even feel the triangle coming up on you. She didn't do anything. She didn't even recognize it was coming. I know you saw it in your life. She's really going to stay in this position and let her lock this triangle on? She's not even going to try to move? She's not going to try and shift her position? Nothing? She's just going to stay right there? That, that, that's, the, that's essentially what happened. Renault just took advantage of all the holes in Sarah McMahon's game. She has never become a mixed martial arts fighter. She, she doesn't react to getting hit very well. She doesn't react to when people up the aggression on her. And she doesn't react very well when people do not respect her athleticism or her wrestling. When people attack her with impunity, she freezes up. And it's happened repeatedly. Yeah, she definitely... Um... She definitely struggled there the minute she got tagged in and, and she got dropped. Uh, so, yeah, I could definitely see some. I mean, you saw the there. triangle coming up, right? You're, you grapple. So, you, you grapple a lot more than I do. Shouldn't she have felt that triangle being set? It wasn't like the fastest triangle in the world. And that's what we were saying. We were like, maybe she was really hurt. Like, I was talking to, I think, um, Luke Thomas about this. And, I, and it's like, maybe she was really hurt. But, you know, it just didn't. It didn't. It was just, it's just a question. Like, there was no posturing, no shoulder swimming, no nothing. I, you know what? I agree with you. She could have been hurt. And it's just my opinion that she wasn't. But on a certain level, how many times have we seen fighters, like, totally rock? And, and even if they can't, they, they, they don't have the defense on the ground right away, you see them at least motioning for the defense. It might be a half second too late, but they're still making the move. There was no reaction from her. Yeah, there really wasn't at that any point in time. I want to move on because I want to talk about Angela Hill as well. You know, that's my homie there. Um, yeah. And her win over uh, Mariana Moroz. 
I was everywhere. It was interesting seeing how many people on um, Twitter were concerned about how this fight was going to be judged because Hill looked great in the first, and then she tailored tapered off in at towards the middle of the second, and in the, at, at the end of the third as well. And you got Morose doing her key eyeing and, and throwing at just about it, just throwing punches out there. Ah, uh, man, we're, I was surprised that it wasn't a, a split decision first and foremost, and I'm I wasn't. I'm not surprised that Angela Hill still isn't ranked after this win. No, it, it, it's unfortunate. I really, the first thing, when people said, a lot of people didn't understand what Morose was doing. If you think about it, somebody actually almost gave Holly Holm that fight over Cyborg, and she was essentially doing the same thing Morose was doing, throwing like 100 punches around, missing 90% of them, and making noise and being aggressive. And then you look at the, the Caitlyn Chukagan fight the, most recently, she wasn't landing that much either. She was throwing like, for every one shot she landed, she was throwing like three of them. And she won a decision. So it's, for people to say like, oh, well, of course the judges got it right. There's no reason to assume that because there, we have two high profile. And in fact, most of Holly Holmes' wins have been her landing at a low percentage, but throwing a huge amount of volume. So we've had multiple occasions where someone has thrown volume and won a fight, even though they're hardly ever making contact. The reason Angela Hill isn't getting a lot of credit for this win is because you have somebody who's barely touching you. And to be honest, Marie, Marina Morose, she didn't look like she had been in a fight. Hill didn't really light her up. So this person's not making contact. They're not really hitting you. They're throwing a lot of air shots. How are you not countering them the same way you countered them in the first round? In the first round, she was countering with the hand, with the knee, with the kick. She was lighting her up. And it just seemed like, I don't know if she got tired. I don't know if she lost her sense of distance. I don't know if the pace that Morose was setting just by throwing and, and being around her in her face like that got to her, but from round two to round three, she just got worse. I mean, after seeing round one, I thought she might be able to stop her in round two. And after round two, in my eyes, it became, it became competitive. If Morose takes a half step forward, she might be landing all the shots she was throwing. So the big concern is that you had somebody who wasn't hurting you, who you had completely on the defensive, who couldn't take you down, couldn't put combinations together on you, and you couldn't put any sort of exclamation point on that win. I mean, that was a 30-27 win across the board, but that was the most uneventful, unimpressive 30-27 win I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with you on that there. And, and I'm looking at Hill, you know, she's calling out, I think she called out Jessica Aguilar after the event. And I'm like, oh, that might not be a fight you really want to call out because she's someone that can wrestle in and, and take her down very often. So I'm like, um... Yeah, you might not want to do that. I mean, she's a better... I, I like Hill. My concern with Hill is the same thing I have with Torres. I personally think she's too small for the division. In Invicta, her, her, against a lower caliber fighter, her power was enough to scare girls off. But in these in these fights we've seen in the UFC, she hasn't scared anybody off with her power. She keeps talking about knocking people out. She fought Ashley Yoder. She never had Yoder on skates. She fought Andrade. She never had Andrade. She couldn't get Andrade to take a backward step for her life. She fought Nina Ansaroff. Nina Ansaroff is never that busy in a fight. Nina Ansaroff explodes in spots. And Nina Ansaroff was on her from, from the minute go, throwing volume, landing volume, bullying her, backing her up, out striking her, beating her up. And she could not get Nina Ansaroff's respect for nothing, landing clean knees to the body, elbows to the head, combination. She couldn't back her off for anything. She's got enough athleticism and toughness to maneuver and compete, but against the better girls in the division, most of the girls who are ranked, she's always lost to. Morose is the first ranked girl she's beaten, and if Morose would have actually stepped into her shots and committed to landing him, 
I don't know how that fight goes anyway. On the outside, I don't know how that fight goes. So she finally beat a ranked fighter, but she did it in the most unimpressive manner possible. And I really, I really don't know how she moves forward in the division because I don't think she has the physicality, the physical strength, or the power necessary to compete in a hard fight for three rounds. She's got a great personality. She's got skills. She's got an interesting style. She knows how to sell herself. She's attractive. There's a lot of things going for her. But for that, all, all the matter, you have to put wins together. And I don't know that she has that, the physical attributes to consistently put wins together. Because all the girls she's lost to are lower-ranked girls. I mean, she lost to elite girls, but she got smoked by them. She got smoked by the elite girls. And then even against the lower-ranked girls like Nina Ansaroff, she got beat up. That was a clear win for Ansaroff. And this win over Moroz, it, even I know you're a fan of hers, but it couldn't give you any sort of confidence in her facing a Claudia Gadelia or a Tisha Torres even. I mean... I think Tisha beats her. I think Michelle Watterson might be a, a tough fight for her. Kate, Courtney Casey might run her over. You know, I mean, it just, it didn't inspire much. I was glad she got the win. It didn't inspire much faith moving forward as far as her being a potential title contender or champion. And she talked about her issues with weight and that she put on weight to kind of feel bigger for this fight. And I wonder how much that bothered her towards the end of the, the fight. Cause she definitely didn't look as spry in round three. Um, Around towards the end of round two and round three. Yeah, I, I, and you know what? And I think I think I talked to you about that. You mentioned it on Twitter, or somebody mentioned it, and you retweeted it. It's a good point, but it's like at this stage of the game, you have to know yourself and know your game a little bit better. How do you put yourself in a situation where you could be exposed? Like, if you're going to put on weight, you have to know that you're putting on the weight in a way that's going to allow you to compete and not hinder you, because all her advantages is being explosive being mobile and being in excellent shape. So are you willing to risk those advantages just for a couple extra pounds that, if you think about it, didn't really make any sort of difference? I mean, let's be fair. She puts on an extra 10 or 15 pounds of muscle. Is that gonna make a difference against Andrade or Claudia Gadelia? I don't think so. I don't think it's worth, I don't think the trade-off's worth it. And that's concerning to me that she would even approach that. If anything, I'm trying to play it to my strength and use the full, the, the physical advantage I have, which would be explosiveness, mobility, and quickness. That's the advantage you have. Strength is, she's never going to be able to make strength enough of a factor where it's worth her putting on 10 or 15 pounds of muscle, or even attempting to bulk up. I think it's a, I think that was a, a bad approach. I think that hindered her, and it's going to hinder her moving forward if she continues to do it. So we've been talking quite a bit about this event, and it was definitely a um, good uh, showcase here. Let's talk about the fight card that we have coming up this weekend in UFC 222. We're at the top of the card. We have Yana Kutsukaya facing off against um, a cyborg uh, Justino for the women's featherweight title. We switched out one featherweight bout for another one here. What are your thoughts about this fight here, and what do you see going down? Um, I actually... Well, I don't think this is going to be super competitive past a certain point. I think um, Kuniskaya is actually better than Holm. She's a better mixed martial arts fighter. That's just the fact. She can grapple. Uh, she's got the Taekwondo background, so she's a, a competent kickboxer. Probably better than Holly as far as kickboxing. And while she's not a boxing champion, I put air quotes up because everybody knows how, knows how I feel about Holly and her pound-for-pound pound best boxing reputation, she's actually a bigger and sharper puncher. She throws a better one-two than Holly, in my opinion, and she, she turns her hips over a little bit better on her shots, and she hits harder. She just hits harder than Holly. Uh, she knocked out um, Cindy Dandois in one round, you know, and a lot of people are saying because she's a weight moving up, she's not a real featherweight. 
But Cindy beat the crap out of Megan Anderson, who everybody wants to see Cyborg face. So, I hate, like, go ahead. We'll go, but before you go on, I hate that everyone's saying she's not a real featherweight. Like, let's let's be real here. She was already booked to fight at 145 before she got called up for this fight with Cyborg. She had, after she won the bantamweight title, and she said she was going to move up to 145. She was booked on this card previously to face. Um, I, mean, I can't remember who she was previously supposed to face, but everything was switched when Max Holloway fell off the card. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, that was my understanding, too, that she was going to move up, so it, it shouldn't be an issue as far as the weight. The issue is going to be, does she have the skill set, the athleticism, and the physicality to do enough damage to Cyborg to get her respect or possibly put her in a bad position? From a technical point of view, this is w- going to be one of the more difficult fights for Cyborg. Um, Yana, like I said, she's a good kickboxer. She's got good athleticism. She's physical, physically durable. She hits harder than Holly. Holly, for all her knockouts, Holly doesn't have any knockouts with punches. She doesn't. All her knockouts were kicks. She hits harder than she hits harder than Holly. She can actually grapple, and she's a better, legitimately, legit, legitimately technical defensive wrestler and grappler than Holly. So Cyborg actually will have to be be concerned about her in multiple ranges, in kicking range, in long distance. She'll have to be worried about the punches a little bit more because she's more a power puncher than Holly. And she can grapple. If Cyborg decides to slam her, get her clinched, trip her to the ground, there's a possibility that Yana could work a submission game or scramble and create a submission a submission threat for Cyborg. The biggest thing working in her favor is Cyborg is having a very quick turnaround. Cyborg is usually a very big fighter. She usually has to cut a lot of weight, so you have to ask yourself, is she going to be in the top condition? If it goes five, will her cardio hold up? How will, how will her body hold up the punches if she's coming, if she had to cut a lot of weight just to make this fight card? Because women, in my experience, have a harder time making weight for mixed martial arts fights or boxing fights. So is that going to affect her adversely? Will she still have her durability? Will she still have her explosiveness? Will she have it for more than a round? Will she have it more than half a round? We don't know those things because she's never had this quick of a turnaround on a fight ever. She's never had it in her career. So this is a very quick turnaround. And it puts Yana in a very good position to have a chance for some success. The problem for her is Cyborg is an aggressive counterpuncher. As long as she is, as long as Yana is, as much snap as she has, as hard as she hits, the fact of the matter is she kind of admires the work a little bit and she doesn't step out of position or move her head offline so she won't be countered. Cyborg is probably top three counterpunchers in the mixed martial arts today. Yana can't avoid counters. If you can't avoid counters, there's really not a way that you're going to avoid Cyborg because Cyborg is going to pressure you. She's going to take the cage away from you, and then she's going to start drawing out attacks with her pressure so that you have to fire something off, and when you fire it off, she's going to counter to the head or to the body. Yana is very bad at defending counters, which means Cyborg is going to land essentially at will. And while Cyborg is not a clean knockout puncher, Cyborg essentially breaks you down with the physicality and the kind of clubbing nature of her punch. She basically beats bitches up. That's what she does. She doesn't knock bitches out. Ronda Rousey knocks bitches out. Cyborg beats bitches the fuck up. That's what she does. She breaks you up. She hits you, hits you till you can't take anymore. So physically, your body doesn't want to spawn and you're just covered up. She doesn't really knock people out clean. So that'll give Yana opportunities to land her shots and to get her stuff off. But the fact of the matter is when Cyborg's cutting that cage off and putting that pressure on her and pushing her back, that's essentially going to take, that should essentially take away the majority of her offensive tools. And her defense, when she's being pushed back, is nowhere near as good as her defense coming forward. And her defense coming forward is not very good at all. So I'm going to say that Cyborg wins because she's got the experience. 
she's a bigger, stronger fighter. And to be quite honest, she's the more accomplished, and in my opinion, the more technical fighter and the harder trained fighter. Harder trained fighter. But Yana's gonna be able, should be able to make this a lot more competitive than it than it is against than it was against Holly. In fact, Cyborg might come out harder because Yana's more of a threat in more areas than Holly. So she might not feel the need to kind of control herself and uh, work work a controlled game because she knows that if she puts herself in certain positions, she can be threatened. Holly was essentially just a really crappy boxer who's got very good kicks. She's not very good in clinches. She's not very good on the ground. She's not very good at getting people to the ground. So all you had to worry about Holly was straight up hands and not getting caught with kicks. Yana has more ways to win. She has more ways to attack. She has more areas she can attack in. So you might not want to take as many chances with that. You might want to come right out, get her out of the way, close the show, and move on to the next move on to the next opponent, which is what I think um, Cyborg's going to do. But this is, as far as the legitimacy of this fight, she's as good a fighter as anybody else in the UFC. To a certain degree, she's better than a lot of girls in the, U in the UFC. The problem, the reason, the real reason people are upset about this fight is A, like he said, she's moving up in Bantamweight, and B, because the girl who, who physically manhandled her and bullied her and finished her was Tanya Evinger. And you saw what, Tanya, what happened to Tanya Evinger when she stepped up to fight uh, Cyborg and her chance at the title. So here you go there, man. You definitely broke that. I mean, I don't have anything to add on top of that, dude. Like, you really kind of went over everything there. And a lot of people are talking about what are the opportunities of her. Cyborg is a huge favorite, which is understandable, looking at, at what she's done. Huge, huge, huge favorite. But are we looking at a point where we may see uh, the wheels finally come off? That's what I was thinking, because, A, she's had quick turnaround, and she's cutting a lot of weight. B, even though she hasn't been in really tough fights, she's been in a lot of fights. She's gone a lot of rounds. At some point, I personally think there's already physical decline. The reason it hasn't been as noticeable is because Cyborg's been very dedicated to shoring up every aspect of her game. She's not just a striker. She's just not a boxer. She's just not a kicker. She can kick. She can punch. She can clinch fight. She can take you down. She can probably submit you from the top. I've never seen her do it, but she's competed in a good enough level of grappling where she has to be considered a competent threat in that range. Once again, the problem comes down to she's so she's so skilled in multiple ranges, and she's so effectively as far as controlling the pace and being defensively responsible. You know, the fact that she applies pressure means she's going to get hit, which means Yana's going to have a chance to land her power, and she can clearly hit because she put Dan Dandawas down, and Dandawas just got done fighting in Risen and beat a 155 fighter who was cracking her a lot. So she can take punishment. So. It proves that Yana has the power, but the fact of the matter is Yana does not have the layers of skill. She has very general skills. She doesn't have the finer skills. Cyborg has the counter-punching. She has the head movement. She has the parries and the slips, and the slips and the counters. So one, even though Yana can attack her on multiple levels generally, she can't attack her on multiple levels specifically. She doesn't have the physicality, nor does she have the depth of skill and enough ranges where I believe that she can take full advantage of what Cyborg has any slippage Cyborg has. I mean, she's going to be vulnerable. I believe Cyborg is going to be vulnerable. I don't think you have that quick a turnaround with the weight loss and her age and think that there's not going to be chances for Yana to get some work done. But the question is, can Yana handle the pressure? Can Yana handle the counters? Can she get away from the counters? What happens in those clinches? And even though Yana is a better all-round fighter, I don't know that she's a better athlete than Holly Holm. I don't know that she's more durable. I know that she's not as experienced or seasoned as a fighter overall. So I think those are going to be the factors that determine the fight. The one thing in her favor is that her camp 
just got a really close look at Cyborg for five rounds. They got a really good close look at her. She can talk to Holly and get an impression of how hard Cyborg hits. She can know that her coaches had a at least a game plan that kept Holly competitive, and Holly's not as skilled as Yana. So that's going to create opportunity. But once again, it comes down to experience and still comes down to a certain amount of physicality and athletic ability. And in those two areas, Cyborg is hugely, hugely, hugely light years ahead of Yana in, that, in those regards. And secondly, the one last thing I'd like to point out is since a lot of the problems that Holly gives people is because she's a southpaw. Most people do not box southpaws. They don't spar southpaws. They don't fight southpaws. Fighting a southpaw will throw your whole thing off. Yana is not a southpaw, so some of the obstacles created by home and the angle she's throwing the punches and the angle she's positioned in aren't going to exist for her, which means it's going to be, which means Cyborg's going to feel a little bit more comfortable getting off. She's not going to be so fearful of counters or so fearful of putting herself out of position and setting herself up to get kicked, kicked in the head or eat a real powerful kick to the body. She's going to be more comfortable because now she's facing somebody in a similar stance with a similar positioning who's basically kind of a straight-ahead, go-ahead fighter. So now she's going to have the comfort that she didn't have with Holly because Holly likes to circle the cage and fight at range. Yana, I don't know how to say her, Kuniskaya, she likes to pressure. You start pushing her back, she's off the back foot, she's not very effective. Cyborg's not very effective off the back foot either, but the fact of the matter is how many people can actually push Cyborg back. I, I haven't seen Cyborg get pushed back. I've seen Yana get pushed back repeatedly. I've seen her get pushed back by Danduaz. I saw her get pushed back in her Bantamweight title fight. I saw her get pushed back by Avenger. So if she's going to be forced to be pushed back, then we're going to have to see that she has skills to fight off her back foot. But I don't know that she can do that over the length of five rounds under duress, constantly getting countered, constantly getting bullied and beaten up. So while I think Cyborg is going to be somewhat vulnerable, the fact of the matter is she's been the pro the longer time. She's got the better set of experience. She's beat the better opposition. She's a more accomplished fighter. And I can't ignore all that just because she might have had a tough weight cut and just because it's, it's a short turnaround. I mean, she made 140 at one point. And if that, it's nothing she's going to make is going to be tougher than making 140. Man, I mean, you really kind of broke it all down there, dude, and I really don't have anything else to add about that. What I'm looking forward to, though, is this co-main event with Frankie Edgar and Brian Ortega here. Uh, it's going to be an interesting fight here. We know, we know Ortega's background. We know Edgar's background. We know who they train with. We know what they do. This is an important fight here because the winner definitely is getting the next shot at Max Holloway once he's healthy. What are your thoughts about this break, this this fight here? Um, I'm looking to see what Edgar does on the feet, especially as we've seen Ortega get get pieced up, standing up. But where he's dangerous is his, his ability to lock something on, lock something that's very dangerous on, and lock it on very quickly. What are your thoughts uh, about that, Darren? And what do you see going down? Uh, my thoughts are really kind of, Ortega's not as bad on the feet as people think he is. He's just learning to put it all together. He hasn't had that many fights. He's not a natural striker. I don't know the, how much time he's focused just specifically on striking. He's got, he's, he's got tools. He's got the physical tools. He's putting it together. His game just isn't very connected. Th that's the biggest thing. It's the same thing with grappling. You might know how to do an arm bar, but you don't know how to switch from position to get in position for the arm bar or how to readjust positions to, to lock on the arm bar. He knows how to throw the jab, he knows how to throw the right hand, he knows how to throw leg kicks, he doesn't know how to put it all together. That's been the biggest thing, that's the biggest hole for him. That and the fact that he doesn't know how to attack while being defensively responsible. 
that being said, um, Edgar to me has lost his step. Edgar actually used to get by a lot on his footwork, but his footwork wasn't really good when they said his footwork was good. It was just really busy. He would move all over the cage, circle. It was pretty predictable. It was pretty basic. And he had the stamina and the conditioning and the athleticism to let him get away with that. He would just circle, 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 come diving in with a combination of the punches and leg kicks and body kicks and all that stuff. Now at this older age, his footwork's actually got kind of layered. It's got a little bit more complex. There's a little bit more structure and stability and weight behind his footwork and actual progressions and what he's doing. Now he's got the footwork that people said he had four or five years ago. And also part of it is because he doesn't have the athleticism, and in my opinion, he doesn't have the durability that he had at a younger age. So he has to be more precise. He has to be he has to be sharper. But even with that, he still has certain habits. He still likes to circle around and come diving in with combination. He still has issues with people who have got a busy and active jab. He's still got an issue with guys who are bigger, stronger, and athletic guys. He had an issue against Aldo. I know Aldo's Aldo, but he had issues with Aldo on the feed. He had issues with Oliveira on the feed. He had issues with Yara Rodriguez on the feet, not because those guys are so much better than him overall in their striking or kickboxing, especially in their boxing, but because those guys scouted him out and they have clear athletic advantages. Brian Ortega has similar advantages. I feel like he's the fresher fighter, he's the more durable fighter, and I think at this stage he's the harder hitting fighter. So even on the feet, Frankie's not going to be completely safe because he's facing a guy who's got the physical tools, and I'm sure his camp is scouting him well enough to know where know that you can counter Frankie. You can counter Frankie with leg kicks. I think you can catch him with hooks coming in, maybe short uppercuts when he when he ducks in for those takedowns. But there's things you can do to exploit Frankie on the feet. The biggest issue everybody's gonna wonder about is will Frankie be willing to put his takedown into effect to take over the fight? Because when Frankie isn't able to get takedowns or get his hands on you to kind of at least face the takedown to get you scared of it, to respect it his stand-up becomes less effective. Because as good as he's got in stand-up, he's not a stand-up fighter. He's a good enough stand-up fighter that he doesn't have to rely exclusively on his wrestling or it helps his wrestling because he opens, it, opens you up with strikes. But he's not hes not some kind of dynamic, high world-class level striker. You put him in with Aldo on the feed, Conor McGregor on the feed, a lot of guys on the feed, they can get to him, they have, they will continue to do it as he's lost a step in his fighting game. The question is, is he willing to risk a takedown? Is he willing to risk getting caught at any moment to get or take it to the ground and work his top game and beat him up and possibly submit him? And in my opinion, he's going to have to use the takedowns. I just would suggest that he uses quick takedowns or uses them a lot for control. Get him against the fence, get your hands on him to improve position, to land strikes on him, take him down, and, and make sure you get in, into his guard where he can't really work his game. That, that's what I think Frankie Edgar has to do. i really like to see him highlight his work on the feet and just use those transitional takedowns to get in on him. He defends a takedown, separate, put the, put the hands back on him. Use it to control the pace, use it to open up your strikes, and the only time you use a takedown is you're pretty much have it, got him on his heels from strikes, and then you can follow through and take him down so you're in his guard. Because I don't think that he can finish him from his guard. But if he gets into any sort of scramble, with Ortega, if he hangs out in a certain position too long, if he's panicked wrestles or he's tired on the feet and he's telegraphing what he's going to do, I think Ortega is going to finish him. And that's the biggest thing with Ortega. Ortega is just willing to, to go all out to finish a submission. He doesn't have any fear of if he misses it or if you get out of it or if you reverse him or if you attack him a submission. 
he has 100% faith in his ability to finish any and every fighter on the UFC roster. And when you're facing a guy who's got that much confidence and that much finishing ability, any mistake you make could be the last mistake you make in a fight. So Frankie's got to be very careful in how he sets everything up and how he uses it. And he has to make sure that he doesn't get in any position where Ortega can create transitions. Because Ortega doesn't really have a structured ground game as far as I'm stuck in this position, let me work my way out, let me work myself into submission. Ortega is all transitional stuff, scrambles. You, you put your head down here, he snatches submission. You take him down, he sweeps you, y'all are in the scramble, he grabs a submission. That's His whole game is based on the chaos and transitions, flitching, flipping through positions, fighting for position. If you can secure a position and get him down, you can do work on him, just like on the feet. If you can secure and trap him in a spot, where he feels like he can't come in because he's going to get countered or he's up against the cage, you can do whatever you want against him. But in those transitional aspects of the fight is where his athleticism, his size, and his killer instinct come into play. So if Frankie wants to win this, he's got to be very meat and potatoes, stick, have a very disciplined game plan, and he needs to make sure that whatever he's doing, he's controlling the situation. He's got to have full situational awareness, and he's got to control the circumstances. He can't allow the fight to get out of hand. He can't allow himself to get engaged in a firefight. He doesn't want to get it extended exchanges on the feet or on the ground. Because all those things do is open up opportunities for Ortega to attempt a submission or snatch a submission. That's what's going to happen. So it has to be very measured. It has to be very precise. It has to be very controlled aggression. And he has to systematically break him down in control position at all times. He loses control position, whether it's on the feet or on the ground. His, his, the fight's in jeopardy. So he has to basically fight almost a pitch perfect fight. I feel that mentally he can do it and technically he could be able to do it, but I still feel like he's lost a step and I still feel that at this stage, he, he's gonna give Ortega something in which Ortega is gonna be able to finish him with. Interesting breakdown, man. You're the only person calling that so far and, I, and I'm looking forward to seeing that fight because this is this is the second time in a row I'm more interested in the co-main event than I am in the main event and what's so interesting about this card as a whole to me is there's so many young prospects that are looking for their breakout moment you have Ortega you have Sean O'Malley you have Mackenzie Dern making um her debut as well too so Look at those three fighters, man. Tell me, who do you think has the most on the line? I, well, obviously, it's, it's Ortega. Let's talk about O'Malley and, and Dern. Who has the most on the line there as they make um, their next steps in their professional career? Um, I think I'd probably say Dern has the most on the line because people are thinking of her as the next Ronda Rousey. They're thinking of her as the big next because she's attractive. She's been dominant in jiu-jitsu. She's like a celebrity in jiu-jitsu. She's got good looks. She's kind of marketable. She, she's athletic. So they, they feel like she could be clearly a next champion. They want O'Malley to be a champion. They think down the road he can be a champion. But I really feel that people think that in the next three to four fights, Dern could be competing for a title shot. I, I think that she has the most to lose in this fight because, like like I said before, they're, they're bringing her in against a girl like Ashley Yoder. Yoder isn't going to be favored in this fight because Yoder is essentially a grappler. She's uh -huh. a competent striker. Who's a who? Who strike? Who's a competent striker who grapples? She's facing a better athlete, and from what I've seen of their fight, a better striker in Dern and a better grappler. So if she loses the loses the Yoder, much less she uses loses by submission. It's a big hit because she's the favorite over Yoder. There's nothing that Yoder has shown me in any of her fights that says that she beats Mackenzie Dern, even at this stage of Mackenzie Dern's career. 
So she's got a lot on the line because if she loses, people are going to have to reassess how they look at her. Sean O'Malley, by the, on the other hand, he's fighting a guy who doesn't have a winning record in the UFC, but his wins were split decisions. They could have gone one way or another way, just depending on how a judge saw it. He's fighting a guy who's big, who's strong, who's long, who's athletic, who's shown skills against varying levels of talent in the UFC, who's been very competitive. Yoder's losses were fairly, fairly decisive. Um, the losses of O'Malley's opponent weren't so much. They were very contentious, very back and forth, could have gone either way. And this guy has shown that the athleticism and the power to be an actual threat to O'Malley if he can get him in the right spots. And after O'Malley's fight with Terion Ware, that fight, that would have been the fight where he had the most on the line because he was fighting a guy who wasn't, a U who wasn't an established UFC fighter who hadn't shown an ability to compete at the higher level. So you lose against that kind of guy, even though he's more experienced, people kind of look at you like, well, what were you doing losing this guy? You were all hype. The guy he's fighting this this time is actually a legitimate UFC fighter. People, It's a 50-50 fight. A lot of people might favor O'Malley, but it's a 50-50 fight as far as the, the way the fight could go. It's essentially if O'Malley keeps it in, in the open space where he can use his feint, he can use his timing, he can use athleticism, he can use his range of strikes and his creativity, he wins the fight. But if he gets too confident, if he blows his load going for the finish early, or if he, gets, he, he doesn't handle pressure very well and he gets up against the cage, where his athleticism and his mobility kind of gets taken away, then his opponent could easily land counters. His opponent could easily break him down to the body. His opponent could easily overwhelm him and stop him and either win a decision or stop him by knockout. He already beat one of his teammates. So he's proven that he's a certain caliber fighter. He's proven that he's a knockout threat. He's proven that he's competent on the feet. He's proven that he's got athletic ability. So we know what this guy is. We know that he can compete at this level. We know he could be have a better record in the division. Dern, Dern's going against a fighter who's basically a lesser version of herself. They've got similar levels of experience. The only difference is Dern's pretty much better in every area, especially the grappling, which is Yoder's expertise. So if Dern loses to her, it it's going to make you stand up and take notice because nobody's expecting Ashley Yoder to be e even remotely um, effective, much less win a fight with Dern. So Dern's got the most on the line because she's facing the opponent who's considered, who's being looked at as the inferior product. Whereas O'Malley's facing an opponent who people respect is a legitimate mainstay in his division moving forward. He just had a tough, tough uh, road so far, but people feel that he has potential to be a contender in this division. Nobody thinks Ashley Yoder's going to be a, a contender in her division. Yeah, man, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what Dern does. Uh, she has that storyline coming in that people have such high expectations of her. I'm looking at the way she's being covered all across the grappling and the MMA world. And I kind of don't want to really want to cover it until afterwards. But I want to see what she does in the case. Sean O'Malley, Sean O'Malley is a character. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does as well, too, on, on Saturday. I think this is an opportunity for some big personalities to get across for, um, for the sport. And we see, especially... In a, in a myriad of ways. Like, Dern could be another Brazilian uh, female competitor that's doing great. Remember, the only Brazilian champions right now in the UFC are women. So this is another opportunity for them to continue to build that brand for them as well. Um, the biggest thing for, for O'Malley, just one more thing, is if O'Malley beats this guy, I know the guy's only one and two in the division, but he's been a guy who's, who's, who's lost decisions, and in his one win, is, it was an explosive knockout. If O'Malley beats this guy, that means he's beating two guys back-to-back -back who are way more experienced than one guy who's a legitimate, legitimately skilled and athletically gifted UFC fighter. Him beating, him winning is going to make more of a, a splash in the mixed martial arts community because he, he's fighting the better opponent. Dern, is be, Dern beats Yoder, it just, 
it just does not say that much. That's why she's got more pressure because she's supposed to beat her and, and do it in an impressive fashion. If O'Malley loses this fight, unless he just gets totally mopped, people aren't going to think less of him. They'll just figure, oh, well, he needs some more seasoning. He needs some more work. But that was after, that was obvious after the Terry and Ware fight. He could have ended that fight, except he opened up, was trying to put on a show, and totally exposed himself and almost got finished himself in the second round. He just toughed it out. He showed that he doesn't have the poise or the seasoning at this point. He needed more work. He needs more development. He needs more time. He needs more time. And the male divisions are, are historically deeper and more competitive. In the female division, that's not the matter. So if you're losing to a certain kind of caliber of fighter, that kind of follows you. You know, you're supposed to be able to, if you're a person like Darren, you're supposed to come in and after a fight or two, be contending for top 10, top 7 ranking. In the division O'Malley's in, you're expecting, you're going for the long haul. A year down the line, two, maybe possibly three years down the line, unless he moves up really fast. With Darren, she's already on the fast track. The loss right here creates a lot of questions and, and douses all the, throws a bucket of water on all the heat she's built up so far. So that, that's why I'm saying, if both of them win, O'Malley's win is going to carry more weight because he's fighting the legitimate fighter who is a danger to him based on his skills, his holes, his physical tools. Dern, if she wins, she's beating a fighter she outclasses everywhere. If she loses, she lost to a fighter she outclasses everywhere who hasn't been able to do anything of note in the UFC. I mean, dude, you're killing it tonight, man. You're, you're, you're definitely on your, your shit tonight. We got a couple other uh, fights I wanted to talk about as well. We have um, Kat Zingano is making her return finally against Caitlin Vieira. So Zingano's been gone for what? She's fought twice in the last almost four years. Yeah. Both of those losses uh, to Jessica Panay and Ronda Rousey. And we also have Caitlin Vieira who's looking for a win as well, too. What are your thoughts so, about uh, this here, you man? You mean uh, Juliana Pena? Yeah, uh, what did I say? Jessica Panay. I'm sorry. Yes, Juliana uh, uh, Pena. And I've never, I've never made it a habit of picking fighters who are coming off a of long layoffs. Zingano's coming off one of the longest here. What are your thoughts about her in, in this bantamweight matchup here? My biggest concern for Kat is the same concern it always is. She's explosive. She's tough. She hits. She seems to hit very hard, but she, she can't. She, I've never seen her fight a hard three rounds. And I've seen her get beat up and bullied by Misha Tate. I'm a big Misha Tate fan, but as I said two years ago, there's no reason Misha Tate should be physically manhandling. I don't give a, I don't care. You can't explain it to me. I'm one of the biggest fans out there. There's no reason Misha Tate should be ragdolling you. If Misha Tate ragdolls you, there's something wrong with it, with you as a fighter. And Misha Tate ragdolled her. And when she fought Juliana Pena, the whole issue with Juliana Pena was Juliana made her fight. Even when she took Juliana down, she was controlling her. She made it for fight for control. She made her fight for takedown. She made her fight to hold her down. She made her fight to get her back down. And essentially, Kat Zingano gas. And I don't see how that doesn't happen versus Caitlin Vera, because Caitlin Vera is a better striking, a better athlete, and a better grappler than Lima. She's basically a bigger, stronger, meaner, more accomplished version of Juliana Pena. And Juliana Pena, won a decision going away after Katsugano had a fast start. I think Caitlin Vera can do everything that Juliana Pena did against Katsugano, except better. The only the only caveat I have is I don't know how much better Katsugano's gotten. I don't really know what Katsugano's style of fight is going to be anymore because she's been out for two years. So maybe she's retooled herself. Maybe she's fighting in a different style. Maybe she's worked on her cardio. Maybe her striking's better. I, I, I have no idea because nobody's seen her. 
Nobody's seen her. Nobody's had any idea of how she's progressed as a fighter in the past couple years. But like you, I can't go off somebody who hasn't been fighting. Because even if you've been training and you've been working towards it, the fact of the matter is you haven't been active. And you haven't been active against world-class athleticism or world-class opposition. So I basically assume that if Caitlin Vera can force a pace, whether she's getting lit up, getting taken down, if she can force a pace at some point towards the halfway mark of the first round, if, if Zingano hasn't finished her or figured something out, Zingano's going to start to slow, as she usually does. And once she slows, then Caitlin Vera is going to impose a will on her, break her down, and most likely finish her. I guess a decision, Kat is pretty tough, but I, I believe Caitlin Vera can, can finish her. Zingano is not going to give it up like Sarah McMahon. She's a little bit mentally tougher. She's a little bit physically tougher, but she's not as good a wrestler. She's not as physically strong. She's not really as good an overall grappler as Sarah McMahon is. So I don't know that, that she's going to be able to control Vera. I don't know that she's going to be able to take her down. I, I don't know that she's going to be able to defend Vera's, Vera's takedown. I don't know that she's going to be able to reverse or get back up when Vera's taking her down. But essentially, if I'm Vera, I'm just going to push the pace, use my physicality, and make Zingano prove to me that she can she can go a hard three rounds. I know Vera can. I don't know that I don't believe that Zingano can, and I believe once Zingano starts slowing, she's gonna fall apart as she usually does. Now she could surprise me because she's been working. That's what she says she's been working, but I don't know that all the work she's been doing is gonna make up for the lack of activity and the lack of top end competition that she has been facing. I know Dominic Cruz did it. Dominic Cruz at one point was number two, number three pound for pound in the world. Zingano has never been that good. And even if she wins, it's still not going to convince me that she's that good because she's been exposed too many times in my opinion. I mean, yeah, she's still right. She's still trying to ride off those two big wins over Tate and Nunez. And I just don't think that that's going to be enough. Um, yeah, anymore. and that, that win against Tate was garbage. I mean, I, I understand why they stopped it, but Tate was going for a takedown when they stopped the fight. To be quite honest, she's another one who, who's got a huge name and has had some dynamic wins, but she just seems so vulnerable. She seems so beatable. She's like a... She's like a less accomplished version of Sarah McMahon. I mean, she's more of a fighter than Sarah McMahon, but some of the losses she's had has just been like mind blowing. Like, how did you fall off so quickly? You were supposed to be the future of the division, and she's just never been able to put a solid three women together. Even when she's one fight, the first half of the fight is her just getting beat within an inch of her life. Against Misha Tate, got beat up for two rounds. Against Amanda Nunes, got beat up for a round and a half. You know, she's never been able to put it all together. And now it's going to be another chance for she fights a bigger, stronger, younger, more athletic fighter who's got skills and who's hungry. Um, I, I'm going with Vera. Vera. If, if Zingano wins, that just tells me Vera's not as good as I thought she was. If Vera wins, she says she wants a title fight. I don't think you should give her one. She needs to beat, she needs to beat someone who's got a... I'd have her fight Marianne Renault. Have her fight somebody with a more of a well-rounded game. She gets past her, then we can start talking title fight. Beating Kat Zingano shouldn't get anybody a shot at anything, in my opinion. Interesting there, interesting. Um, so let's see. We also, man, do you care anything about this uh, Stefan Struve, Andre, or, or Orlovsky fight? I keep on wondering if they're setting this fight up to see if they get a rematch with Struve and, and Miocic. I really keep wondering if that's a long game. They're hoping that Struve knocks them out so they can say the guy who knocked out Miocic is going to rematch with them and maybe they can sell that storyline. Dude, how many years ago was that? Let me look. I, let me look. Keep talking. Let me look. I mean, it's... It, I know what you're saying. That was years ago, but think about how 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 long has Katzengano been trumpeting the win over Amanda Nunes? That's like three, two two years ago, two three years ago, and she's still talking about that win. She beat Misha Tate like what three years ago, four years ago, and she's still talking about well, I beat her. I mean, that win over, over Miochix was back in 2012, 
And since then, Chicago has been four and three, losing to Mark Hunt, Alice Overeem, Jared Rochelle, and Alexander Volkov. I don't know how you can make a title shot out of that. I mean, but who else is who else in their well? I mean, the fact they're going to Daniel Cormier tells you they don't have anybody in heavyweight who who has an interesting fight. Dude, I think if Stipe beats Daniel Cormier, he has Brock Lesnar next. Uh, yeah, that that would if if Brock's back in, but what if he's not back immediately? The way they need another fight, they yeah, need another I mean, fight in the meantime. The only thing there's two things. A, you know, they did this whole dance when um, he was walking away from WWE the first time. His contract's up in April, so there's that. And then he still has his USADA suspension. I think he has six months left on that as well, too. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, they'd have to have at least one, unless Cipe is just gonna sit out and not do anything for a while, which I don't think he wants to do. I think he wants to set records and show he's a dominant heavyweight. And other than what uh, Blades. There wouldn't really be anybody else for him to fight. He's already beaten the best guys in the division. Uh, or maybe Derek Lewis. I guess it would be between um, Struve and Derek Lewis. But, you know, once again, Derek Lewis doesn't have any history with him. But I, I, that's, that's the only interest I have in this fight because I, it might have been you, if you brought this up to me that they're going to try to package the fight in this match. And I, I'm just really interested to see that if he wins, are they really going to try and do it? Is, is that the best idea that this multi-million dollar company can come up with as far as marketing? and creating interest for the heavyweight champion of the world. Hmm. I mean, I, I, that's really where we are with that um, whole division. So let us know, man. What are you working on right now? What are some other things you got going on? Um, I did an article recently. It was five. It's called Ovin St. Prude, Five Reasons. And I basically break down the main the main aspect of his, his skill set that I, that I think defines him as a fighter and the five reasons that kept him from becoming elite or winning a title. Um, I'm actually thinking about doing a part. I haven't really decided on this, but I'm thinking about doing some some articles where it's not not going to be so much of the current event, but it's going to be so much. It's going to be more just outside pieces discussing certain aspects of the mixed martial arts. I want to do. I'm going to be planning on doing an article that's comparing Jessica Andrade, comparing and contrasting Jessica Andrade's career in the UFC and Mike Perry's, and show kind of the similarities they have and how it's gotten different results for both guys, like how one's winning, one's losing, but talk about the similarities in their situation and how, uh, how, you, can, how you can see how both people will have similar successes and similar um, failures as a result of the circumstances they have as far as their training, their physical tools, and their ranking in their, their um, divisions. Some good stuff, man. I'm always looking forward to your work. You, you really kind of dive into it, especially with women's MMA. And we always talk about the way you're a leader in that 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 space right there. Um, what do I got, man? Nobody I got. You can say we hate the women over here. We've had the the top female coach in mixed martial arts on our show. We probably I've listened to other shows. They don't talk about the women fighters in depth or as as often as we do. So and nobody can ever accuse any of of us of not giving the women their proper respect as fighters as businesswomen, as potential faces of the organizations. Because we do that every week. Not just some weeks, or when it's popular or the big fight comes on. We do it every week, every show. Every show, man. I'm with you on that, too. I'm working on, as usual, covering just about everything. Got wrestling going on, football, MMA, working on some stuff on grappling as well, too. So uh, it's just going to be a busy, another busy month. Yo, today's the first, so I'm just trying to get some content out there. Um, nothing specific right now, but I'm keeping a close eye on just some storylines to kind of get some stuff together. I was shocked that 
you didn't have an Olympic curling article because I figured you just covered everything. <laughs> yeah, should, yeah, whatever. I should have done one on the guy who failed a, P, a, a PED test for curling. How the hell do you do that? But I mean, you know, it is, yeah, it is what it is. You know, you know, PEDs are rampant when you're you got got to get performance enhancing drugs for curling, the the least dynamic athletic sport in the world. Next thing you know, table tennis people are gonna be failing for testosterone. I mean, that's really it's, it's all over the place, man, and, and it's just not going to change at all. So with that in mind, man, I'm gonna go ahead and close out. You know, we almost went um two hours here, which is fantastic as usual. So let's uh kind of close it out and. Tell everybody where they can find us. Uh, you can find us always on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes. I think that is it right now. But I want to thank y'all once yes. again for listening. We're doing our very best for y'all. You have any suggestions or thoughts or questions, feel free to hit us up on Twitter. Feel free to comment on the show on YouTube or on SoundCloud. We will reply to all comments. We will reply to all questions, and we'll do our best to get the people you want to see and discuss the topics you want on the show. Exactly, as always, man. No problem. Have a great night. You too, sir.